can't believe they showed that video. <laughs> I, let me just say before we move forward that thank you guys for, for loving us. And Haley and I say all the time, you make our lives full. And it's our, I, I, I say it, but I mean, it's my joy to serve this church and the greatest honor of my life. So um, I am very disappointed that they showed a video to you of me swinging a golf club. Shame on you. Shame. I literally caddied because I said, I will not, I will not golf in front of people. But I just, just to clarify this, I was the dang best caddy at the entire tournament. Just so you guys know, the only caddy. So Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we just say, we love you. It's so good to be yours. It's so good to be loved by you, to know you and and Father, one of the gifts that you've given us is your word, where you speak to us, encourage us, correct us. And um, as a body, as a family, we love the word of God. And so we ask that you would speak to us again. You've met us so many times in this place. Meet with us this morning. Come, sweet Holy Spirit. Minister to our hearts. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray that everybody say amen. Thank you for your penance. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm teasing. Well, in, in 320 AD, there were a group of Roman soldiers. They were in Armenia at the time, you know, modern day Turkey. A group of Roman soldiers who had come to know the Lord. And these Roman soldiers were st still serving in the military, felt like they could faithfully serve in the military with where they were. Um, but eventually the kind of captain of their guard found out that there were some in their midst who had refused to worship the Roman gods. Now you remember in the Greco-Roman world, there was a God for every little thing. And if there was not enough rain for the harvest, it was because you weren't worshiping a particular God. And so the Christians in that sense, and in, in the, in the ancient world were called atheists on many occasions. When you read, uh, old documents, the, um, uh, Christians are often referred to as atheists because they didn't believe in the plethora of gods. They would only serve one God. And so when the captain uh, found out, hey, look, there are some soldiers in your midst who aren't worshiping the gods, that's a big deal. And um, he essentially called them out. And he said, whoever in our midst refuses to worship the gods because you've become a Christian, come forward. And 40 men, 40 Roman soldiers came forward and confessed to Christ, uh, they were essentially told, you need to recant your Christian faith, you need to worship the gods, where else? And this is kind of the pattern of Christian history. Um, and so they refused to worship the gods, and uh, their punishment was essentially that they were going to be left to freeze to death in the cold. They were stripped of their coats, they were left on kind of on a frozen lake, um, and just left standing hungry out in a cold winter day. Well, after some time, Again, 40, 40 men, after some time, one recanted. One man recanted, and he uh, went, got a coat, and uh, walked away from his confession. And when he recanted, there, there wasn't another soldier who had watched the whole thing and who had grown uh, convicted by the commitment of the Christians had grown convicted by the strength of the Christians. There's, there's a strength that it takes to stand through persecution. He was convicted uh, by the fortitude of these men's character to serve Christ above all else. And as one man walked away and the 40 became 39, another soldier uh, named uh, Aegeus, he, he took off his coat, threw it down, 
and joined the what would become the be known as the 40 martyrs of Sebaste. And so uh, you, you read about this, the, the Eastern Orthodox tell this story a bit, um, but you read about these 40 Roman soldiers who froze to death because they refused to come to know Jesus, one giving himself to the Lord in the midst of the suffering. Now, the suffering of the saints has inspired and challenged the world for generations. Again, the fortitude of these men stirred up conviction, curiosity, conviction, um, of, of the other man watching, of the soldier watching. And this is the concept that led Tertullian to write, the, the, the church father Tertullian, who wrote in his apology to the Roman leadership, he wrote this, we, speaking of the Christians, we are not a new philosophy, but we are a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. He wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And talking to Romans, he says, you praise those who endure pain and death. Think of the Roman kind of worldview of, or value system, like, like strength in soldiers. Tertullian says, you praise those who endure pain and death, so as long as they aren't Christians. And so what Tertullian is saying in a roundabout way is, look, we, we have fortitude, we have courage, and we have strength. And the more you try to snuff us out, the more we advance, the more of us the, there are. And then he says, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that line has gone down in church history as a mantra of suffering and persecution. Every time a martyr lays down their life, a church is planted in that region. So these concepts are played out throughout church history. Persecuted Christians with courage and boldness and a divine peace to face suffering and death with, with, with almost a serenity about them as they worship Jesus. Those persecuted Christians have become the seed of the gospel presentation to the earth because there is stirred up a kind of curiosity and conviction when the world watches someone suffer on purpose. Now, let's read from Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to find Paul talking about his own suffering, how he views his suffering, and how God uses his suffering. Let's read. Colossians 1, verse 24 through 27. Paul said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions to make known to you fully the word of God and the mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now let's, let's apply our minds here for a moment to try to understand all that Paul just said. So again, we're turning to the book of Colossians, written to the church at Colossae. Remember that these early Christians, they were wrestling with some false teaching, some worldly philosophy and ideology that has taken place in their midst. They're going on and on about personal visions. Uh, again, philosophy and, and the worship of angels, angelic expressions. And Paul writes to this church, who is going down the road of false teaching, with this word. You need to grow up in Christ. 
You need to set your eyes on Jesus again. You need to become mature Christians. You need to be founded and and on the cornerstone, which is Christ himself. So remember we said that when Paul uh, approaches a spiritually immature church who is going astray with false doctrine, the first thing he did was he talked about Christology. Who is Christ? The first thing he did was he said, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He created all things in heaven and on earth, whether whether, uh, spirits or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. So the first thing Paul says to a spiritually immature church is this, make sure you ground yourself on, on solid Christology, who Christ is. And then remember the next thing he said to the church, what we studied last week is, and you were alienated from God, hostile in your thinking and wicked in your deeds, but God in Christ's body as he suffered, God reconciled you to himself to present you as holy, blameless, and above reproach. And so first he says, let's talk about who Christ is. Christ is the creator, the sustainer, and the finisher of all things. And then he says, let's talk about who you are. You are um, a depraved people who have been redeemed, restored by the body of Christ, by the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of the lamb. You are a redeemed people wicked people who have been redeemed in Christ. So again, follow that. We're talking narrative here, right? Like we're talking the flow of the text. First, who is Christ? Next, who are you? Totally fallen yet fully redeemed in Jesus. And the third thing he turns to, the pronouns shift from he. When we're talking about Christ, the pronouns were he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all the, uh, of all the dead. And then when he shifted to talk about them, then the pronoun shifted to you. You were alienated. You were hostile. You were redeemed. Then the pronoun in our paragraph now has shifted to I. So follow the logic. He talks about Christ. He talks about the saints at Colossae. And now he's talking about his own ministry, his own purposes. Paul's now talking about himself. I, that we opened with. um, Now I rejoice in my sufferings and I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, of which I became a minister. And so you see that this paragraph, this line of reasoning, we're not talking about Paul. Who he is, how he lives, why he ministers, particularly what we're talking about is Paul's suffering. Now, remember again that Paul is writing to this church at Colossae from a Roman prison. So, what we what we're what we're studying today is is Paul saying in Rome I rejoice in my sufferings. Now a little bit of biblical timeline. Paul's Roman imprisonment was after his third missionary journey. And so we're talking about Paul's writing from his Roman imprisonment and saying I rejoice in my sufferings. This is the these are the latter years of Paul's life. These are the latter years of his ministry. And so when he says I rejoice in my suffering, he's he's not this isn't his first first go around, right? He's sitting in prison, but by God, he's sat in prison a lot, okay? And so, just to remind you, just to jog your memory from first uh, from Second Corinthians chapter eleven, let's just jog our memories to think about all the suffering which Paul has suffered, because again, he's writing from the latter years of his life. And so, in Second Corinthians chapter eleven, he's arguing for his own apostleship, and he he calls this foolish because he's like, I'm trying to argue with fools about my own authority. Why am I rambling on? But he tells us about his, his own suffering. And so he says in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16 through 23, talking about these other apostles, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. 
I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. So Rome's not his only imprisonments. He has far more imprisonments with countless beatings. How many beatings? Countless. And often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Five times he's, he's lashed. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, and danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, left out to the, to the, to the weather. And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me from my anxiety for all the churches. So I carry, I also carry a daily pressure, a daily anxiety as I'm concerned for the health of the churches. And so here, when Paul writes to the Colossians, again, in the latter years of his life, we can understand that everything he said in Corinthians, he, he may have in mind when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. So he's experienced 40 lashes five times, beating with rods. He was stoned, beaten countless times, shipwrecked, hungry, sleepless nights, left out in the cold. And eventually we know from church history that Paul would be murdered in Rome. He would give his life in Rome. Church history says that Paul was beheaded during the same period which Peter was crucified upside down. Um, what many believe is that Peter was crucified, Paul was beheaded because Paul had Roman citizenship. And so his great um, advantage of Roman citizenship was a beheading rather than a crucifixion. What an advantage that was. Um, obviously, a crucifixion was longer. And so uh, Paul, Paul's life is not just sprinkled with suffering, it's bathed in suffering. Right? Like, like what, what, he's, what he just told us in Corinthians, and when we have in mind the timeline of Paul's life, we're talking about decades of suffering. And so as he turns to the church at Colossae, he says, I rejoice in my suffering. So a question that we could ask and we should ask is, what, how did Paul think about suffering? What, what would undergird a man's convictions to cause him to persevere through suffering for decades? Like, how can a man be beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, and, and just get up from that and go, yeah, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Like, that sounds like a good idea. Keep preaching. Like, how many of us, the first time we're kicked down, we look at God and we say, this is not what you have promised and Paul's just like, bring on the stones. Imprisonment, cool. Preach to the, to the guards. And so we, we need, to, we need a, a good reckoning with suffering. Our, our, uh, our pastor used to say that this, the charismatic and Pentecostal people have no doctrine of suffering. It's one of the greatest weaknesses of spirit-filled churches. We have no doctrine of suffering. It's really interesting. I was thinking about this this morning. The 20th century, the church gave... Uh, spilled more blood. There were more martyrs in the 20th century, some believe, than all other centuries combined. And now, obviously, there's a great growth of population, but there also was a great slaughter of Christians in the 20th century in China, in the Middle East, in, in Russia in periods. Um, Christians died a lot in the 20th century. 
Um, and we are seeing an explosion of evangelism at the same time. So there's a connection between martyrdom and evangelism. So for instance, in China, there was quite a bit of blood spilled from Christians who gave their life for the faith. And then today we have a, a substantially large church in China. There's a direct connection with those two things. But it's very interesting, follow me here, that in the 20th century, we had the greatest bloodshed of Christians ever known. And at the same time, we had the rise of prosperity doctrine. So in, in the West, in Christian churches, we were saying to one another, if you really had faith, if you would confess and believe, if you would speak, God, give me the BMW, make me healthy and happy and prosperous. If you were mature and in faith, you would have a blessed life. Like, what small-minded people are we when on the other side of the world, the mature, bold Christians are laying down their lives for the gospel? And in the West, we got weak why we preach to each other, if you were a mature Christian, you would be rich. And in the rest of the world, they were saying, if you were a mature Christian, you would suffer for Jesus gladly. And the church around the world bloomed. While the church in the West, what we actually did was we church hopped. There, there are less Christians in our nation now than before. Bigger churches, but less Christians because we church hopped around. No one shared their faith. No one took the gospel seriously. Not no one. Obviously, I'm being dramatic here. Um, but again, it's a skill of mine. Um, <laughs> but, but isn't that an interesting thought? Like in the, in the age where persecution was hotter than ever, we in the West went after name it, claim it theology. And... I, I only as we approach this concept of Paul saying, "I rejoice in my suffering." Oh, by the way, I have suffered for decades. Um, obviously, obviously, Paul's doctrine is not: if you were a mature Christian, you would be happy and rich, right? Like that's obviously not what Paul thinks. Paul thinks uh, mature Christians persevere with faith through every hardship on purpose. Christians persevere on purpose. Perseverance. Now, if you'll remember, that's actually where we stopped last week. And so, in a way, what Paul said to the Colossians in the line before our text today, I'll read it to you again just to remind you, what Paul said to the Colossians when we were talking about them, is he said, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, the Colossians, holy and blameless above reproach before him, if indeed you, Colossians, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and earth, which I, Paul, became a minister. So the last line of the last paragraph was, Christ wants to present you, holy and blameless before the Father, but you better persevere. You better continue steadfast. You better hold fast to the faith that was presented to you. So we concluded the last paragraph talking about perseverance. And then he turns and says, now I am suffering currently with joy. So in other words, Paul is now saying, you need to persevere. Follow me as I follow Christ. And he's saying, my life should be an example of Christian perseverance. And in context, when we're talking about here, he is talking about the minister, the apostle. And so he is in a way saying that, that mature believers, apostles, the fathers and the mothers of the faith, should be examples of perseverance through suffering. In other words, we don't just give Christian leadership to the person with the most charisma. We give Christian leadership to the people with testimonies of faithfulness, even through hardship. 
for my role as, as the pastor, you're very young and stunningly handsome pastor. Hallelujah. Um, woo, my, I, that joke's not going to get old. Um, I, I have a divine responsibility to persevere. With Paul, I must be able to say to you, suffer on purpose, suffer well, persevere through hardships and trials like I suffer on purpose. There is a Christian responsibility, fathers and mothers in the room, those of you who aspire to Christian leadership. There is a responsibility to persevere through hardship and testify of the goodness of God in your life, your faith in Christ, even through great storms and hardships. And if you cannot persevere, Paul would say, then you should not lead the church of Christ. Again, Western Christians, we need to stop handing titles and positions to the most gifted and charismatic people. We need to get back to character and fortitude over gifting and and, and, and expression of charisma, right? If you don't have the character to support your gifting, you've got nothing. And so we need to be purified in our souls by the, by the fire of the Spirit. So Paul is saying to the Colossian church, okay, I'm trying to get us to the full narrative here, the full theme. Paul is saying to the Colossian church, you are going after false doctrine and false teaching, There are people in your midst who are pressuring you, pushing you. There are little quarrels trying to peer pressure, intimidate you to go after these heretical ideas. And Paul is saying to the church, you better learn something about perseverance. And then he's saying, look at me. I've now persevered for decades and I do it gladly. I rejoice in my suffering. I don't moan and groan and complain and whine. He says nothing about about naming and proclaiming a better life, right? There's, that's nowhere in Paul's theology. He says, I, I rejoice in my suffering. And then let's return to the question quickly. Um, Paul, how do you rejoice in your suffering? How do you think about your suffering in such a light that it becomes something you can rejoice in, right? Because naturally we think about our suffering as suffering, right? We think about our suffering as, as, as the, the plans of hell, right? This is the demonic attack. Paul, how do you think about suffering in such a way that you just keep pressing through it? Interestingly enough, the first thing Paul says is, I rejoice in my suffering for I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now that's a very interesting line of scripture. There's lots of debate about what that means, but there is consensus on what it doesn't mean. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul is clearly not referring to atonement suffering on the cross of Calvary. He is not saying that Jesus' blood was not enough, so I need to suffer more to add to the atonement of the cross. Paul, Paul obviously does not have in mind here the cross and atonement. He says that Christ just three lines before, and the body of his flesh redeemed us fully. So what does Paul have in mind when he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, biblically speaking, the afflictions of the Messiah, the suffering servant, they don't just refer to the atonement, the the unique vicarious atonement of Christ on the cross, but, but Messiah suffered and was persecuted for the entirety of his life. 
right? And so Jesus was rejected, mocked, scorned. Um, uh, he, he wept in prayer with great tears. He, he, he suffered a rejection from his own family. Remember, his brothers and sisters called him crazy. And so N.T. Wright, who, who's a New Testament scholar, he, he talks about this some. Um, in, in, in the intertestamental Judaism, there was this concept or idea that the new creation, the messianic age, would be birthed through birth pangs. So when you think about the kingdom in the light of, you know, we say all the time, the kingdom is here, is now, and the kingdom is not yet. Right? I am saved today, but I still have this body of infirmity. Meaning, I'm, I'm fully saved today, I belong to Christ, but there is a day where he will deliver me from my own sinfulness, fully. In, in other words, um, I, I belong to him today, but yet there are still trials and pressures. He brought healing for us on the cross. Yet, Paul says to Timothy, drink a little wine for your frequent ailments in your stomach. And so, we, we live in a now and not yet age, right? Like, we, we have Christ, but I've never seen him. Not with my eyes. I will. And so I'm, I'm in the in-between. We live in the in-between. And, and the intertestamental idea, the rabbinic concept, was that, that there would be birth pangs. And so, in other words, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the creation groans and longs for the day in which all things will be redeemed. And so Christ bought for us redemption, atonement. He paid the price fully for our sins. But the gospel message will go forth in suffering and persecution. And there, there will be birth pangs in the period of the gospel being proclaimed. So some will carry the gospel in our day. Some will carry the gospel to Middle East Iran, and, and they will give their lives. They will lose their heads to carry the gospel into a region that is hostile to the gospel. There's still birth pangs happening. Some will preach the gospel in, in, in China or in some Asian country, and they will lose their head, they will lose their life, or they will live in prison for great periods of time as they preach and proclaim to a world who hates Christ, Christ. So our mission, according to Matthew chapter 28, is to preach the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And so um, we are preaching the good news of Jesus to a people who don't want to hear it who stuff their ears and they pick up stones to hurl at Stephen. And like Stephen, the proto-martyr, the first martyr of all the saints, we are to continue preaching with a smile on our face because we belong to the kingdom that is coming, not to this world. And so the concept that Paul is beating at here is, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions to preach what he did on the cross to the four corners of the earth. There is still suffering that must take place, in other words. And then there's this thing that, Paul, that Paul's doing here that's really interesting. He refers to his suffering as Christ's suffering, as if Christ is suffering through him still. And, and it's really interesting. Think of Philippians chapter 3. I'm, I'm like theology nerding on you guys right now, but like at least once every six months I'm allowed to do this. So um, think of Philippians chapter 3 where he says, I counted all his loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That I would know Jesus and the fellowship of his own sufferings. Paul considers this uh, something to be desired and longed after. 
to share in the very sufferings of Jesus. Now, what, the way that Paul's theology, I think, kind of works out here is that Paul considers Christ to be the head of the body, which is the church. And so he's, he's, he's referring to a kind of mystical union that we have with Christ. And so that when the church suffers, in some way, it is Christ's suffering. We're united with him. And then he's going to say in, in Galatians 2.20 and other places that, that I'm actually dead, and it's Christ who lives in and through me anyway. And so in some mysterious way in which I'm uni- unified with Christ in, in a mystical union, I am, I am suffering with Christ and in Christ, he takes part in my suffering. He gives me strength in my suffering. Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Just so you know, that passage is about suffering. He says to the Philippians, I can suffer well through Christ who gives me the strength to suffer well because I am suffering in Christ, by Christ, and for Christ for the sake of his gospel. And this is what Jesus means when he says, uh, in other words, Jesus says, there is a cost to carrying the gospel. If Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is Jesus saying? If you will follow me, go ahead and pick up your cross because there will be suffering. There will be persecution. So now Paul says, I'm filling up what is lacking in the suffering of Messiah. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection with supernatural miracles and the gifts of the spirit, raising of the dead, healing of the sick, but that I may also know him in the fellowship of of his suffering and his rejection and in his persecution. Jesus said, if they hate you, remember that they first hated me. That in belonging to Christ, we participate in his being hated by the world. And Jesus says, you should count that as, or Paul says, you should count that as as a reward, as a blessing. Jesus says, rejoice when they persecute you. So Paul says that my persecution, I rejoice in it because I'm carrying forward the gospel. I am suffering so that the gospel would continue to move through the earth as a continuation of Jesus' own suffering by his strength so that new churches would be planted in new communities and that the kingdom would be birthed kind of of upside down. We would birth the kingdom in this fallen world. And he says to the Colossians, and this is what I want you to get. My suffering is not pointless. My suffering is on purpose. My suffering brings forth God's kingdom. My suffering is an opportunity to profess my allegiance to Christ Jesus. When they pick up stones and they pelt me, it only creates an opportunity for me to say, I love Christ more than I love this life. When they, when, they, when they bring stripes to my back, Paul says, I have an opportunity to profess that what is in me, the faith that is in me is not fickle or wavering. 
In other words, every time they put me in prison and tell me, if I recant, I can get out. Every single day I am screaming in their face, I believe this man. Suffering on purpose to proclaim the gospel, the validity of the faith which has been imparted to me by the Spirit. And Paul's concept of suffering is, is not just persecution, um, though it is primarily persecution what he has in mind here, but he also says in Corinthians that I suffer anxiety. Now, we hate that word, and for good reason. We want to work towards peace and joy. But Paul says there is an anxiety that I carry as I worry about the churches of God. That, in other words, there is a pastoral pressure that I live under daily so that when you at Colossae begin to go after false doctrine, I feel pressure. I feel anxiety. I feel a sense, and this is not the right word, but a sense of responsibility and fear. And I need to protect and shepherd and guard. And so he's even saying there, there's physical persecution. There is hunger and being left in the cold. There is... Um, sickness, and then there is, in the area of my soul, a pressure that I carry as I contend for the health and the, the, future, um, the future health of the church. And all of that, all of that suffering, God uses for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Paul says, I serve God's people, right? He said that, that I suffer for the sake of the body He said, I suffer to fully preach the word, to bring you the full gospel. And he said, uh, that the world may see the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I suffer for God's people, and I suffer to bring the gospel. I suffer for the advancement of the kingdom and to reveal to the nations the mystery of God. And the mystery of God from a New Testament perspective is always this. Christ redeems even the Gentiles. The mystery of God refers to God's overarching redemptive narrative that, 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 that even as Isaiah sits to write his prophecy, God has in mind a future elect people whom he is going to redeem for the glory of Christ. The, the mystery of God was that the, the Jews alone would not belong to Messiah, but that Messiah would redeem the entire creation through his shed blood. And so Paul says, I bring you the whole gospel that even you Gentiles, Christ lives in you, the hope of glory. I think he, he may be, Paul may be slapping at the idea that, uh, again, remember the Colossian church is kind of going after secret knowledge. And he may be saying, look, you want to talk about mystery? The mystery of God is this, Christ Jesus redeems sinful people fills us with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and births in us holiness, righteousness, peace, and joy, and brings through our lives the kingdom. Paul is saying, maybe saying, you're talking about secret knowledge, you're talking about celibacy for the hope of attaining some new spiritual heights. The mystery of God is that Jesus redeems you broken people, fills you with the Spirit, and is birthing a new kingdom through your lives. So Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for 
It is on behalf of the body in order to bring the full gospel in order to advance the kingdom. Now, Seth, worship team, come for me. I'm going to wrap this down. So, in conclusion, you could say to me, Caleb, I'm a Christian now. I've given my life to Christ. Will I suffer? Am I now exempt from suffering? And the, the biblical answer would be, no, you are not exempt from suffering. But your suffering will no longer be meaningless. So the Christian and the atheist will suffer alike for different reasons, different purposes. The, the atheist will suffer with no meaning or purpose in sight. But the Christian who lives in the will of God Every ounce of suffering that you experience will be to advance the gospel, to bring glory to Christ. It will be meaningful. The promise of God to you is that not one drop of your suffering will be wasted if you live your life in the will of God. So you say, I'm struggling with a bad diagnosis, right? I'm, I'm just yakking here. So Caleb, I got a diagnosis of cancer. It's not necessarily persecution for the gospel, but I am suffering with a physical illness. Why, why, why did God allow me to suffer? Now, that's a great theological question. Um, but we would say primarily we live in a broken world. But the promise is not that you will never suffer. The promise is that your suffering will be an opportunity to, to preach the gospel to your neighbors, your coworkers. Your suffering will bring the kingdom. The promise is that even if that cancer puts you on your back and in your deathbed, you'll have the opportunity to look at your children and say, I will not forsake my Jesus now. He's been good to me for decades. And there's something, this is what the, the 39 martyrs left. Remember the martyrs at the beginning of the sermon? They learned. When we show faithfulness to Christ, even in the face of pain and hardship and struggle, there's something contagious about that. And so the soldier who didn't even know Christ throws his coat off and says, I've got to have what they have. And so you say, this cancer is awful. The cancer is riddling my body, killing my body. Why, God, am I suffering? Well, I don't have all the answers to that. All I can say is that in your suffering, if you suffer well, Christ will bring his kingdom. You will have the opportunity, like the martyrs, to put on display for all of your children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews, my faith is in Christ Jesus and in Jesus alone. And this is the kind of the testament of the, of the three friends of Daniel in the fiery furnace, right? Um, we believe he will deliver us. We know he can deliver us. We believe he will deliver us. Even if he doesn't, I won't bow my knee to you. And, and, and so, so you say, uh, my marriage is falling apart. And my husband walked out or my wife had an affair. And it's not Christian persecution, but this feels like a mess, man. Yeah. Yeah. The promise of God to you is not that your life would never have these kind of trials. Yeah, it feels like a mess. But if you hold fast... And if you still get up in the morning with a cup of coffee and your scriptures and you choose and you, you say in your heart, like, I'm going to forgive. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean everything has to be mended back the way it was. Um, doesn't, I'm not saying that you have to stay in that relationship, but you say, I'm going to forgive and I'm going to live the, the best way I know how to follow Jesus through this. It's hard. I'm going to shed tears. I'm going to shed tears. That's okay. 
but I'm going to do my best to honor my Jesus through this mess, I promise you that that falling apart marriage will become a platform to preach the gospel of Jesus to the children that you've been praying for to decades. For your nieces and nephews who are addicted to drugs, they'll say, what in the world? How are they keeping their head up? Why haven't they quit? And then eventually, that, that kind of suffering, that kind of, that kind of, that kind of pushing through suffering, it becomes like a nagging knock on the, on the ears of your loved ones. And it's, it's just there. I don't know what they have. I don't know how that they, they persevered through that kind of hardship. I would have given up. I would have laid down. Or a biblical idea of persecution would be your family rejects you for your faith. Or you've come to faith from another background and everyone chews you up and spits you out. Or we're going into an age where we're going to be mocked and ridiculed for our faith. The Christian response is not, we love prosperity. The Christian response is not, God, give us peace or we quit. Christian response is, I will fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. In other words, I will participate in the birth pangs of the new kingdom that is coming. I will suffer on purpose. I will suffer with meaning. Always believing for for healing and deliverance. I tell you guys this all the time. I am not praying that my kids experience persecution. That's, That's not a Christian worldview to pray that our kids have get stones pelted at their face um, not praying for that but we are saying that even if that comes our our love our peace our hope our joy comes from the fountainhead of christ jesus and christ jesus alone and you take my breath you starve me you imprison me you kick me sickness kicks me and i can't deny that man He's been way too good. Will you suffer? Yes. But your suffering will not be wasted. If you go ahead and stand to your feet, we'll get ready to close. I want you guys sing for us just for a second. We're just going to take, take just a few more moments and kind of invite the Lord to come and minister to our hearts.